Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Holfish, ACE. I'm a working film, TV, and documentary editor. Over the last nine years, I've done more than 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris FX products for almost 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today on Art of the Cut, we're talking with Kirk Baxter, ACE, about editing David Fincher's latest, The Killer, which is now on Netflix. Kirk's been on Art of the Cut before, for Gone Girl and for Mank. He was nominated for an Oscar, a BAFTA, and an Ace Eddie for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. He won an Oscar, a BAFTA, and an Ace Eddie for The Social Network. He was nominated for an Ace Eddie and won an Oscar for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, was nominated for an Emmy for House of Cards, was nominated for an Ace Eddie for Gone Girl, was nominated for an Ace Eddie for Mindhunter, was nominated for an Ace Eddie for Mank, and won an Ace Eddie for Love, Death, and Robots. Before I hop into our discussion with Kirk, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for almost 30 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com blog AOTC. That site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Kirk Baxter, ACE, discusses editing David Fincher's The Killer. Thank you so much for joining me. This is uh, the last time we talked was on uh, Mank. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. This is a very different project than Mank. <laughs> yes, David Fincher back to his punk rock status. I think I'm more at ease in this genre uh, with this film, though, let's talk about this movie. Tell me a little bit about pacing. I felt like there's, there's the movie starts with a hit. Did the pace change from pre-hit to post-hit, kind of? Or did you not feel like that was true? Always. Yeah, it was something we spoke about. The movie in general, we meaning David and I, he had an outlining kind of sentence, which was, the movie is about process. And when it's the killer's process, when he is in the driver's seat, we're going to be extremely deliberate about everything. And the camera will be steady. The pacing will be steady, considered, exacting. Continuity will rule the day. And then when things go out of his plan, when chaos erupts, 
we're going to introduce camera shake. I'm going to start to jump time slightly, start to clip action and have the freedom to kind of make it more exciting and out of control. It's classic sort of like thriller horror construction of stretch everything until you reach that point. Most of the, the series of chapters or kills have this similar construction that is stretching process, like taking your time with it and then exploding into action. There's a great use of the voiceover line in the beginning. It's like, if if you don't have patience, this is not the profession for you and you can almost create it out for movie. Yeah, that's definitely true for editors, don't you think? Oh, God, yeah. It's last man standing. And it's also big on process. He's very into, this is the way I do it. I have this process. I've done this a million times. And editors need that same understanding of process as well, right? That you, maybe things aren't going as well at the beginning, but you know, over the course of your edit, the process will get you there. Yeah, I can relate to all of it. I mean, I don't relate to being a psychopath. But <laughs> I can relate to the faith in process to see you through. That if you follow all of the, your steps of survival, you will get to the other side with the result you're after. And it sort of touches on the mental health of it all, of how to, like you do need your own version of a mantra or whatever you're selling to yourself internally to kind of go, all right, this is how I'm going to get through this. You mentioned the voiceover. Uh, when you were pacing out that opening before the first hit goes sideways, how were you pacing that with the voiceover, laying the voiceover out, laying the visuals out, doing a little of both? No, I would just start with the visuals on their own and then try to fit the voice to it. Voiceover is always a wriggly fish because you can keep changing it. Sometimes we would drop lines, then we rearranged it, put it in different orders. It's rather pliable. We recorded fast, I think four times doing the voice. And each time was getting it further and further snug to where the picture was ending up. And a, a lot of extra lines were written in certain areas. There was a lot of voiceover to kick it off up until the first kill or misfire. Then it started to streamline back into just a repeating of the mantra, but dropping away sections. So the mantra got shorter and shorter as he was breaking his own rules and his own disciplines were starting to erode. So it was a much more simplistic approach at first with how much was said. And David wanted to expand upon it. He was enjoying very much the um, sardonic humor that you could bring to it and a bit more insight into who this person was. What were some of the reasons that the voiceover uh, changed or that you decided to drop or rearrange lines? I mean, a multitude of reasons. Sometimes they got longer. Sometimes we wrote to gaps. The sniper scene, it's so... Um, like you're working within frames of what can fit. We're blasting the music in his ears, the Smith song up so high that it can't fit voiceover. So it became this rule in the movie from that scene that then sort of bled out in every direction once we perfected that scene of saying, okay, his POVs own what's going on inside his head with sound and no voiceover goes on his POVs in the movie. And it all goes where the music's not up at 10. It needed to be paced in those gaps and it needed to fit in those sections. 
so sometimes I could cut the shots to fit the voice and other times I had to kind of rearrange where voice was landing. And sometimes once you start with a voiceover like that, it becomes lyrical and it sort of, you know, comes out at a certain pace and you want to sort of stay true to expectations of how it's falling unless you're deliberately playing with time with people. There was a section when the killer kind of stops and breathes and controls his heart rate and it's a long section where you're looking at him and there's a nice piece of voiceover that could be put there and we weren't utilizing it and david sort of went let's let's write to this piece of film and, and it became you know all about the bullet getting through a like stained glass that's certain thick without losing trajectory and you could get a big fat meaty line so it was all of the above. It was me wriggling around with what I can do and, and a lot of sort of mathematics of, all right, when do I start this? If I start it too early, it finishes too soon. You know, do I back time the whole thing from the gunshot, uh, from the time he squeezes the trigger, and if I work my way backwards on it? It was just a lot of experimenting. The first time I built it out, I didn't even have the opposite side. I didn't have the target. Like that was all shot on a studio much later. Uh, so I had all of Fassbender's side. And I just built it out with blocked cards sort of saying, you know, maid walks across room and did all of that to the music and built out the voice and kind of, it allowed me to sort of get the best of the action on Fassbender's side. But then when you get the other one, it's, you know, best laid plans don't quite work out and you're rearranging the whole thing. You know, I learned a long time ago with David's stuff that I'm, I mean, I'd like to say with any form of film editing that I'm not racing to be done like I'm not going, ah, oh, fuck's sake, this doesn't work now that I've got the, like I accept that I'm doing it again and I try not to kind of have lots of versions of things. I like just moving forward and sort of saying, okay, I'm going to need to start this over. And then David would go, let's question the song. Why don't we try something else? And then that's like all of a sudden the edits all start changing because the music track is changing. So music track changes, voiceover changes. It was a wriggly thing to pin down. For me, I think it's one of David's best scenes ever and one of the strongest in the movie. And I was always pretty happy to be working on it and perfecting it. And there was a, a moment when I kind of first really got it to work. I was very uh, confident that it was working. It's not my style to send something to David with under the heading of this is working now. And which is kind of what I did. I sent it to him. Going, I fucking fixed this. It's <laughs> <laughs> the first time I put it together. Now, I remember David made some note. There's always multiple angles to how to look at stuff, especially the POV of the target. There was five or six different angles of size. You could be in what was the, um, the scope size. If you're looking through the gun, you could be in a master wide from across the street. And you could be in three or four different sizes kind of looking through the window all getting closer and one of a camera following them around and one kind of locked off. And there was a lot of variant. If I was using a scope thing, it became too easy to blow the guy's head off all the time. So I could use that sparingly. And I always wanted it to pair it with Fassbender's eye up against the piece. So some of it, it was self-evident of where to be in the angle and some of it was not. David made this note early on when I was in one of those sort of wider shots where you're just showing it like a stage of the living room. And he was like, it feels like I love Lucy. And it, it's, <laughs> not, <laughs> probably not what you want to hear. <laughs> it's funny. It's just a note like that. It gave me license to say, okay, start breaking up the rules. Be less, I guess, pedantic about it. 
And for, so for the first time, it became a scene where you didn't just get a POV of the following the killer's eyeballs. I could start to intercut that footage or like the killer's walking over to his bag and now you cut back to them. Like he's not owning every POV. Once you sort of introduce and set it all up, it can, the information can spill. And I can also cut shots together of the POVs as pieces of action. And so I loosened myself up to sort of go, okay, the goal is just for this to be cool. The other thing that's making it cool is the way the music was used based on what the POV is. Whether you're looking at the killer or whether you're looking at the target yes yeah i love i mean i loved that it just it made everything about a hundred times harder to execute and it became a super time-consuming scene but it's just incredibly enjoyable and I, at first i was hunting after every kind of big guitar riff in that song of going i've got to exploit everyone and they're going to dictate the cutting pace and I managed to hold on to a few of them, but I, it couldn't be the law of the jungle because it was what's more important, the performance or the voiceover or the over, you know, or where you are in the particular story. And for me to be slaved to the song at every moment was incorrect. But I tried. I certainly tried. <laughs> but it sounds like you were originally not cutting to music and that maybe even the music changed as you got went through the process. It changed and then it went back and we, we had to sort of prove that the Smiths was the right decision and nothing else beat it. God, we tried so many different things. And music editor Sally uh, was involved at one point and she tried classical and Brian Eno and even spilling it throughout the movie, we, we did this sort of early 80s post-punk kind of play and Trent Reznor kind of chimed in and, said, why aren't you just doing all Smiths? The Smiths is the great. Let's go back to all Smiths. It was the cherry on top. It always is for me, like playing with music. I just love it. Being part of choosing which track should go where to have the most black comedy in it was really one of my favorite parts of doing the movie. Dolores dying down the stairs and then hitting it with love to wish you an unhappy birthday. It, it's, I, I really amused the shit out of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Another music cue I wanted to talk about was the beginning of the movie, you're seeing this killer surveil his target and it's very boring. I mean, not, it, it, he's saying it's boring, right? It's, yeah. it's a great scene. But then there's a moment where you realize the hit is going to happen and there's a music cue, which I think is score-based. Is that correct? Do you remember? There's almost no music in the opening, except for there's two moments it comes in. We discussed it a lot. One was when uh, the postman comes in and it interrupts his voiceover, which is, to me, they're the, the most enjoyable bits of the voiceover is when they're interrupted and they get cut off and they sort of teach the audience that these are musings that are happening live. It's not a narration placed on top. It's, his, it's what's rattling around in his skull at the time. And when that postman comes in, then we introduce score just to heighten the tension of that moment. Is he going to blow the head off this unsuspecting stranger with this high-powered rifle at close range? It would have made quite the mess. It probably would have spoiled the whole plan, most likely. He would have had to get the hell out. So we use score there, and then it sort of tucks away. And I'm not sure that the audience is really aware of it. It's, but it sort of comes in, and it just it helps just boil. And then when he 
wakes up and it's like, okay, the, there's change. The curtains have been opened. The target's afoot. Then score um, starts to come in at that moment. And we debated it. We sort of went, do we do it? Do we, do we keep it dry and not do anything until he puts the Smith's track on? And I think it does help uh, put the squeeze on it to sort of go, all right, everybody, buckle up your sphincters because it's all about to get tense. Another thing that I want to talk about, and, and you might have already kind of described the thought process, is he takes off on a scooter. It speaks to what David was trying to do with the character and what he wanted the movie not to be. There was no car that, you know, has machine guns in its lights, or even in the most Maxwell Smart version, he didn't sort of have a shoe that he could talk into. There was no money penny. He gets on the most unmasculine getaway vehicle because he wants to blend into the crowd and he sort of putters away. But yeah, the point of it was, you know, it was all don't look at me clothes, don't look at me vehicles, don't look at me seats on the plane. He was not first class. He was not shaking martinis. There's a point in the story where he arrives at a beach house and I, I might have missed it, but I, I, don't, I think that it's one of those places in a movie where we're not going to explain the story. You're go he's going to arrive and you don't, you don't really know what's going on. Is that true? No, I mean, informationally, the movie just sort of slowly spills out on you. Again, David was attracted to this idea of just dropping yourself into this genre that doesn't require backstory. Here's a guy that's on the outskirts of society and you're going to watch the process that he has to um, slaughter his uh, chosen target based on earning some bucks. I think because we're not giving a voiceover or a narration of sort of saying, hey, I'm driving home now and I'm going to be safe, we're leaning on Rand Kleiss, the sound designer, to tell that. We're, we're leaning on what the images are to tell that. You get a clue that he's somewhere as he gets into his car and drives away, that it's, there's another language of how the exit's being presented. And it's all very diesel heavy in the beginning. And I'm cutting all these shots kind of together. There's a lot of traffic noise. I'm cutting them together very quickly. And it's like, and it just gradually gets quieter and quieter and quieter. The piece of score for that moment is giving this impression of everything's calm now, everything's safe right as he pulls up and sees the cigarette butts is when you know that that soundtrack spoils or curdles and gets cut off and now slam we're back into action editing again and and the handheld camera gets brought back into use and the tempo all in increases you used a couple of close-ups of course during the that opening hit scene you know you're looking at fastbender's face very close on the scope that kind of thing but I also thought of reserving a big close-up for an important moment in the hospital when he goes to visit his girlfriend and he makes a promise. And I thought, man, you, you make sure you're on him for that moment and you make sure you're on him big. It was something that was said very early on in the piece with Fincher about the movie being all about the girl, the importance of why he pulls apart his own survival rules because he's allowed his love interest to be harmed. He's put her in harm's way. So that line to me was the point of the movie. 
of I will never allow this to happen again. This will never be allowed to happen again. So it seemed obvious to me that it, it's got to have the biggest close-up, the, the biggest exclamation point in terms of sizing and framing. I think most things, as you tell them as film editors, you're, you're telling them in size of frame. There is a choreography of space. There's always coverage when the way things are filmed, it's going to be covered wide and then everyone's going to cleave it apart as they get closer and closer and closer into detail. But it's up to us not to overuse that. I think each time you use it close up, you're sort of diluting its power in a scene. I'm trying to remember our previous discussions, whether you are of the mind that when you have somebody like Fincher that's delivering so many great setups so many different angles and shots that you try to not reuse them is that correct or how do you feel about that uh, yeah it's it's a, it's a goal of mine to to not overuse things i yes i would i would love to be able to just use everything once i don't think that's important with dialogue i do think you often just want to come back to your back on over shoulders and close-ups of the person you know. yeah dave loves over shoulders they're a lot more complicated to get on the day because you just got more elements in the frame and there's more overlap or with actors and someone in the foreground could be talking at the pace that you're not interested in and they're more fiddly to perfect but they just feel better always i think than just sitting on someone like big close-ups are only going to have one person in there but that front on kind of or side three quarter of a, of a person i'd much rather be in an over shoulder but Dave will always kind of get both and do it on two cameras. And so I'll try to utilize everything he gives me without fearing overcut. I think that's the goal. Like you don't want to write yourself into the script over some sort of nonsense that you've invented for yourself. And don't stick to your own rules. Yeah. Although the, that, that got the uh, hitman into trouble. <laughs> you use them as long as they make sense to you. There's so many great shots. Everything is so cinematic. When you were looking at dailies, what does it mean to you to have the visual beauty of a shot when you're trying to edit compared to just, I don't know, storytelling when you don't have something They still are storytelling shots. Oh, sure. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's pretty rare in David's movies to have a, a shot that's not pushing things forward. Like everything has to have its purpose. So I'm, I'm mostly looking at them as collective pieces. It's hard for me to divorce myself and um and just kind of go oh my god how wonderful like it's a mathematical brain that's whizzing away going what do you do for me with all of them but he does have a way of shooting where even the most sort of rudimentary kind of shoe leather things just fucking look good how do you build tension editing wise i think a lot of it's pre-designed i would say in the in, in, in almost in screenwriting by the idea of showing a lot of detail and taking your time leading up to what's going to be like a high impact action piece, I think sort of marinating in the stretch is building tension. So I think more than any other movie I've worked on, this was one that really got to exploit that whole idea of we're not in a rush here until we are. That to me is the suspense sound had a lot to do with it with this as well we tried to not um rely on score and music to kind of always place it create the tension for us in explosive action absolutely 
But most of the tension stuff leading up to something, I kind of cut it dry. And then later on, Trent and Atticus had sent us um, probably about 40 minutes of music pretty early on in the piece. And I got to kind of place most of the music everywhere. And there was this wonderful sort of riptide kind of undercurrent sounds that almost work like sound design. And as soon as you start to kind of introduce them, then it's the same thing as we were talking about earlier, when the target starts to arrive in the first scene, then you you sort of cue that music and it's like, and something's about to go down. That's only effective if you've not used it beforehand. So it's the sort of, it's the discipline of not overplaying a hand as well. Oh, you were mentioning sound, and I know there were other scenes where this happened, but when the movie is in Florida, I definitely noticed the sound, bells tolling, silence of dogs barking, insects whirring, that kind of thing, added a great layer of dread or something. Yeah, well, I think Ren had a lot of room to move, Ren Kleist, the sound designer in this film, because it's it's so sparse, there's such small amounts of dialogue and it was you know very reliant on him to sell where we were you know, i haven't been in those areas of florida but i'm told it is like that that it's uh the equivalent of what new york city sounds like with traffic except it's nature did he give you that sound design early in the process or only after you'd cut it or what did you put in to cut the scene i had assembled it but in this film, because Dave knew that he didn't want to lean on score as much, after I'd assembled the film, Fincher went and worked with Ren long before we were at a final cut point. Like, I mean, I'd be making up the time frame, but I think they spent a, a few weeks up in San Francisco and did like a really solid effects lay of the film. And I had that to work with from that moment forward. It's such a wonderful thing when you've got a tent mix in because it, it separates you from what you've been working on. Like it kind of dusted off all my fingerprints for me and I got to see the movie. And you can start to see where you're taking your time too much and what needs to get pulled up. And, you know, you can I could watch it as a viewer that wasn't making it and start to pick on it as I'm supposed to. Give you some objectivity. Yeah. That was a much faster way to say it. Thank you. <laughs> this is your interview, not mine, but I thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> you continued the idea that you used in the opening hit of the vo- of the music kind of cutting in and out. Um, you know, the volume punches on cuts. I just loved it. It, was, it just became the style of the movie. And it was so successful in the sniper scene you know, in my opinion, in our opinion, there was a point when we, once we got that one finalized, like Dave was like, let's do it everywhere. So he's not always listening to music. So, but when he is, we take advantage. Like I, I kind of, I think we invented it for um, when he was in the van and he's watching Dolores across the street. So he's just playing music in the van dressed up as the delivery guy. So it's the same principle there. It was sort of, you know, blaring it from inside the van, like using the POVs to kind of high and low, not just work for headphones. It just sort of became a style of the movie. It's the same way that we, you know, wouldn't use voiceover on POVs, whether there was music around or not. 
that is behind rules. It was obviously for story, but it definitely added to those cuts. It added to the tension of it. It added to the power of the visual edits, I thought. For some reason, too, they seem to allow you to sit in POVs longer. They kind of had more power and the whole thing became a bit more deadly in terms of if he's got his eyes locked on something and we're watching it, it's like, ooh, things aren't going to end well for you. One of my favorite scenes is um, in the hallway when he gets up just outside the lawyer's office and he's doing his countdown with the door. I mean, it's like a Swiss watch, this whole one, two, three, as he's doing his internal head count. And I was trying to do the same rules there with the counting. And as you're sort of doing this rapid cutting and you're kind of not placing a voice on certain people, it's, it, it, was a, it was a fun, um, complicated task. And it was, it's a, the whole movie is very like vertical sound editing. Like a good example of that is using all of that on both sides of the glass with Dolores, where she's laughing with the, the delivery guy and it's sort of muted on his side and you get to her side and it's loud. And then you've like everything, it's the same way we're using the music. It's just a lot of um, abrupt sound editing, placing everything in the perspective of the killer. Do we do it visually and Ren's doing it with sound as well. And you were doing that in your picture cut before the sound team stepped in, at least in some. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But Ren just does everything better. <laughs> I would hope so. One of the things that I'm always interested in talking about is cinema time, right? There is There are jumps in time where you're like, we don't need to see him getting from here to here. But then there are also times where you do show the shoe leather and he does walk from one place to another and he drives from one place to another. And there's other places where you're like, nope, we're just going to cut. Do you have coverage in there where you could make those decisions or was it pretty much scripted? Those sorts of things aren't scripted. So it could be a one-line thing that takes two minutes on the screen. It depends a lot on where it's landing. If it's in montage-style setup when he's out looking for a green car with a light on top, like that's his one clue to go searching for this taxi, then that I'm trying to compress everything to be as quick as possible and just pack it with information and move really quickly and then... If you sit on one shot for too long, it feels out of place in a sequence like that. But when you're outside in the restaurant when he's tracking Tilda, they're long, long shots of walking and forging his plan together. Your earlier question of how do you create tension and suspense, it's by marinating in it. That's a good example of that scene for then writing to the scene because we want to sit in those shots for that length of time, then David added, adds the extra layer of going, all right, let's create a, a piece of voice over here that it's risky going in to do a kill in a public spot and most people would uh, be blaming the husband. And you know he's going after someone who can kill him right back. Yeah, he's got to have the element of surprise. The Tilda scene was written to be, it was easily a third longer. There was a lot more dialogue in there, all about kind of, hey, we're two samurais. You know, you're a craftsman, I'm a craftsman. Let's be professional about this. There's a lot more stuff of her trying to talk her way out of it. And she was terrific, like she always is. I do think she's become like a prized possession 
for a lot of filmmakers. Strangely, you know, when I went the long way around, I built the whole thing out, but the, the tempo got created around Fassbender, doing nothing, saying nothing. I think he had two lines, something close to that. You knew the sort of parts that you had to have. And then in between, there was only so many times you could cut to him looking hard or not getting affected. And much like a close-up, each time you do it, it holds a little bit less power. And then there's these sort of micro-movements that he's got to push it along, and he's amazing at doing the slightest little eye thing, or you're interesting me now, I'm not interested in this, I'm going to shut down on this line of questioning. Like he does do all those to telegraph forward, and I use those things as the paving stones to kind of go, okay, this is the best way to reduce this by making them both equal weight rather than being frustrated by his lack of participation. There was a lot of uh, experimenting and reduction in that scene. It was another case of saving the close-up. There was one big sort of massive close-up, and there's a point in it when Tilda's character was like, and you missed, and I save it right for that bit, and I hang in that big close-up, and there was one take where he looks down and it's like, oh, fuck, did he get under his skin here? And, and I put a little push on it. You know, for a person that by design or a character, but by design and a profession that is not signaling any form of weakness to the other side, you had to live in micro movements. So I exploited them as best I could. How do you note those? Do you use markers or something like that to say this little moment or do you, are you just rewatching I save them, select them, and stack them. And I sort of stack them in the points where I'd like to use them and then sort of play through going which one's the most effective. Dave loves seeing a good alt, loves it. Are you building the alts or are you... Sometimes he'll give me a note. He'll just write alts on picks. And so if I'm confident that I'm using the best one, I'll show him one or two others repeating that moment. So hard cutting a repetition and the music stops and everything. David's clever with that. He can judge things without them being perfected into place. Like he, he, he's not going to go, oh my God, you ruined the spell. How on earth am I supposed to judge the best performance? He can compartmentalize and compute pretty rapidly. And, and, but other times I'll just put a new one in and send in the same. I'm assuming you cut in Premiere? Yes. They've been incredibly supportive of what the team needs. I sort of remove myself from the process a little bit as I'm, I would say, a Luddite. It doesn't concern me as long as I'm honest about it and that you've got people around you that aren't. Peter Mavamartis, who's a producer on the movie, is exceptional of what the process is. He's the long-term post-supervisor kind of. Yeah, though he's, he's... More than that. Yes, I believe his title has turned into producer. He still is all things um, post-supervisor. I just call him Sir now instead. And uh, Ben Insler, who has since at the end of this film, he's taken a job working at Premiere, who is now the guy that comes and sort of sets up the pipeline for you if you're going to use him for your next movie. Ben knows everything about everything. I've sort of always made it a bit their choice as to how we're working. At David's office, there's a lot of people, a lot of the team is there the stabilizing's happening in place, some of the effects is happening, the grading's happening in-house. Like there's a, there's a lot of just handing files back and, and forth. I don't really want my uh, you know, piano playing to be dictating what's the best vehicle for us to drive. 
I've been to that facility. Is that where you cut or did you cut at home or? I cut at home when David was in Paris and when he was in the Dominican Republic and when he's out of reach. If Dave's in the same city, I'm going to work in his office so that he can pop in and visit with me. I always find that you get a subtext when you're near each other. When I'm away from him, I just get texts and I love the subtext. He, Dave doesn't have the interest. I was going to say patience, but I would say the interest to sit next to me and watch me editing. It, it's much more of that. Here's something I've cooked earlier. How do you like the taste of this? So that's usually how, so he just does it as he pops in in the morning, he pops in whenever he's got 10 minutes and he stays busy downstairs in his office. That works really well, that whole system. And, and I find if I'm working from home when Dave's not about, I, I tend to work more because I can you know, have dinner with the family and then escape the dishes and go back to working. And <laughs> Maybe I should cut but, that out. <laughs> <laughs> No, there is this sort of, it's knockoff time when you're at work and it's about commuting and getting home and living a reasonable life. And it's easier to abuse yourself when it's under your own roof. Like I find if I'm waking up at 5.30 in the morning, I could get two hours of work in before breakfast. And you just can't do that sort of stuff doing an office life. And then at one point on this film, which was the first time this has been tried for us, is we picked up and moved to Miraval, Brad Pitt's property because he had just set up this soundstage for, well, I guess a mixing studio that used to be on the property years ago, doing a lot of really amazing albums. And he's revitalized it and redone it and created a couple of editing rooms as well. We just went and lived in this wonderful setting for I don't know how many weeks. We worked very hard and very diligently, but we still uh, had swims and drank rosé. I probably shouldn't tell people that because it just sounds so <laughs> <just funny. laughs> uh, It does make me a little jealous. That does not happen with me. Yeah, I would like for it to happen again. Believe me, I love it. How are you working remotely? You mentioned you're kind of hopping cutting rooms. Like, how is that all? Or you don't know? You're the Luddite. Yeah, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> I, I'm more just sort of going, why is this not working? Um, <laughs> When you open up your computer, you just expect that it's going to work. Yeah. You know, for me, it's a lot like a car. You know, you just get it and go, and every now and again, you need a mechanic. I started on film, on assembling stuff, physically cutting and splicing pieces of film together. And that was my assisting years. And I started editing when Nonlinear came about. And ever since then, editing has been an arms race, of just constantly evolving and changing and the whole data storage of it all, et cetera. I, I just haven't kept up with it. And if I've tried to, it, it just keeps moving forward. Now, that's my big excuse, Because, but there's other people older than me that have been doing this longer that know how to do everything. So it's probably more that I'm a twit. But truly, the, the real reason is, is I don't have any interest. Editing for me is more of a mindfuck. It's about psychology and where do you want to go? How do you want the audience to feel? And I've always seen my role as, as somewhat the fanboy that is a version of the audience that's kind of trying to put it together for the end goal, experience it. And that's what I'm focused on all the time. The technical part of it doesn't interest me. It never has. You have your own post house, do you not? Yes. It specializes in commercials. That's the field that I came up in. Yeah. 
are you still doing short form and in is that different muscles or do you find that one uh helps refresh you for the other yeah i mean you, look in a 60 second commercial you've got to exploit every frame and you've got to really compress time a lot and some of them can be done really well you get a lot of great directors working in that medium i've done a bunch of commercials with fincher i enjoy the discipline of the format what changes in that world from my experience between doing movies and commercials is on a movie there's one person fincher and that's all the interfacing there's a bunch of us and everyone's helping he's got uh, you know pocketfuls of tastemakers that he's going to show things and those opinions are all welcome but they're not changing the movie unless david thinks they're clever ideas so and when you work on a commercial it's a, a lot more of a blend of art and commerce and it's layered of i'm gonna make it for me then i'm gonna present that to the director and then we're going to show it to the agency creatives and then they have a boss and that person has a client and then it can all reset back to the beginning again and you know so you you become sort of the last filmmaker and like again psychology comes into play because it's about how do you sort of navigate groups of people in my 20s i was more at ease with just being a bully and i find now as i'm older i'm much better at kind of adopting the role of i'm here to help and helping can take many hats you mentioned the fincher cut spots is that how you met him no we met on zodiac yeah but how did you get on zodiac i was editing at a company called rock paper scissors with an editor angus wall and he'd been editing with david and they were fine cutting a bunch of scenes based on performance and to assemble something and to fine cut something there's about probably five days difference it was putting in behind keeping up with dailies so we needed another body to come on and do a few more of the basic scenes and so i got the introduction kirk thank you so much for your time today and uh i hope everybody gets a chance to see this it's it's a uh, classic fincher and classic baxter thank you so much appreciate the interest that's it for out of the cup this week thank you so much for listening Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com slash blog slash AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven Curated Look at the Craft of Editing. Thanks to Kirk Baxter, ECE, for joining us on Art of the Cut. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Hallfish, ACE. Thanks for listening, and please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. <music>